The last few weeks, we have been looking at the book of First Timothy. We've tried to put this book in its proper literary and historical context. That makes us feel very smart and sounds very fancy. But we've learned a couple things along the way. In the first verse, we learned that this is a letter that's from Paul to Timothy. And there's a couple things happening in these first couple verses, just to call your attention to them. We see Paul kind of flexing his muscles a little bit, saying, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have some authority to talk to you, Timothy, about these things. These are important things that will be structuring uh, the local church. But there's also this bit where he calls Timothy his genuine son in the faith. There's a relationship between these two, and we've seen how that hopefully has inspired us in some way, shape, and form to begin to think about our own discipleship relationships with others. For many of us, we just kind of do life on our own. It's a lonely place to be. Um, at times, it's a dangerous place to be. And hopefully, just in this beginning frame, we see the importance of relationships between people. Mentor, mentee, discipler, disciple if that's a word. We see these people in relationship together, and Paul is writing specifically for uh, a purpose. This purpose is outlined in the next few verses. He writes, as I urge you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. All throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he's entrusting people to go do the work that he's unable to do. Paul cannot be in two places at one time, so he has these co-laborers that go off and do work for him. And here he's entrusting Timothy with a big task to stay in Ephesus and kind of deal with the train wreck that's happening uh, in, in the local church there. He's supposed to stay there so that he can command certain people not to teach different doctrine or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. In other words, there's bad teaching that's happening. There's people that have rised up amongst the ranks and they're beginning to teach things that Paul himself would not agree with. Therefore, he's putting Timothy in this place of um, authority, if you will, to kind of guard what's, what's going on here. He says, such things are promoting useless speculations rather than faithfulness to God's way of ordering the world. So for Paul, this whole thing hinges on Timothy and Paul in various places describing the gospel in a way that helps people to bring order to their world. What it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus, what it looks like to follow him in a way um, that would make him proud as opposed to what these teachers were doing here. Uh, so we see some folks uh, would describe what's going on in the first few verses as this, Paul is writing to address the most pressing issue that's facing the community in Ephesus. Namely, the presence of elitist and intellectual members who seek to impose heteronymous norms. Say it with me, heteronymous norms. Yes, seeking to impose heteronymous norms on the community of faith. So these people, these smarty guys are r rising up and trying to give people a different way to, to do life with Jesus. There's not a whole lot more detail that goes on in the book as to what that looks like and what that teaching is. It just says these people are teaching things that seem to be out of whack with what Paul himself would be teaching. And it seems that there's this underlying motivation that perhaps these folks want to become on a pedestal or they want to become the ones with the authority. They want to be the ones with the loudest voice in the room. Um, continues on in verse five through seven. The goal of this command that Paul is giving to Timothy is one that's rooted in love. Love comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And last week, we kind of spent some time with this. 
in the sense of in the church, oftentimes we are not known by our love, we are known by our authoritarian spirit and our, um, our deep-seated desire to kind of be in this sort of relationship with people. Uh, a lot of times, the, the, the way that we follow Jesus is not one where we're exhibiting or enacting love, it's one where we are um, bringing judgment upon people and being the judge and jury on, on what's good and, and what's, what's bad. And we can see some of that in, in this situation here. It says, some have departed from these things, namely love, and they've turned to meaningless talk they want to be teachers of the law, and this is important, that phrase there. They want to be Torah teachers because of where this text is going to go. And tonight we're going to look at two different uh, passages that kind of relate to this idea, but they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So tonight we're going to check out what this looks like for them to be teachers of the law by framing a discussion of law and grace. Two distinct sections that seem to not go together too well that actually do go together well. When Paul writes these letters, I know some of you probably have boyfriends or girlfriends or husbands or wives, and when you sit down to write a nice letter, you want it to be very flowing and flowery and beautiful, and you want your words to just go from point A to point B in a seamless locomotion of love words and happiness, okay? Some, something to that effect, where Paul, in the same way, he wasn't writing a locomotion of love words, but he was writing a very uh, so sound argument where these things that he includes do fit together. So we're gonna look at these two different things tonight. The reason why I keep going back and forth is we don't have a clicker, as you can tell, and it's kinda throwing me off my game. Why didn't you tell me that sooner? <laughs> he just kinda came in and put it down. He didn't, could've tapped me on the shoulder. I'm right in the middle of stuff here. Okay, see, now it works. Now we breathe a collective sigh of relief. Heteronymous norms. Got my clicker back. Okay, we're good. All right, so 1 Timothy 1, beginning in verse 8, Paul writes, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, or maybe a better way of translating that would be if one uses the law appropriately. You tell me, what is an appropriate use of the law? Thank you, Officer Evan Rogers. <laughs> Speeding tickets. Yes, absolutely. At times, people are going too fast, and they need to be pulled over, and cops need to meet their monthly quotas. It, fact or fiction, Evan, you pull more people over in the last week of the month. <laughs> okay, well, there you go. Paul says um, that the law is good, and he, he repeats this sort of phrase throughout. Romans 7 is, is a good bit of his writings where he talks about the importance of the law. Without the law, we wouldn't know what is wrong. Without those speed limit signs, we wouldn't know what the posted speed limit is on those roads. At times, we drive as if we don't know, and at times, we really don't know what the posted speed limits are, but still, they're there to, to kind of guide us. So Paul starts with this idea that the law is good if it's used lawfully or appropriately. The problem is the teachers in Ephesus were not using the law appropriately. They wanted to be the Torah teachers. They wanted to be teachers of the law, and they wanted to use that in order to kind of keep people down and maybe to keep themselves up as the intellectual elite, okay? 
we understand this. This is Paul talking, and often he talks in, in terms of what we, or he as, as an apostle, and us as Christians, what we know. He affirms the things that we know to be true. And here he's saying, we understand this. The law is not laid down for the righteous person. The law instead is laid down for the lawless and rebellious, the godless and sinners, the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers. Paul's like taking this and going, like he's raising the level here. Starts off with just the ungodly um, and the the lawless and the rebellious, and then he just starts ramping it up here. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, uh, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for anyone else who acts according, or who acts contrary to the sound doctrine which agrees with the glorious gospel of the blessed God um, with which I have been entrusted. The law is for these people. Who is the law for? Speak to me. The righteous or the not righteous? Multiple choice, there we go. Yeah, the not righteous. It's there to teach them the right way to go about things. It's not for, in a sense, the righteous people. If that's all that we had to go on, we wouldn't really be constructing a great image of, of who we should be as Christians. Along that list, if you just kind of look at it, um, it basically says, don't kill your father and your mother. Pretty good, <laughs> you know? Don't lie, don't be one who uh, commits perjury, like don't be sexually immoral, like those sorts of things. It's not giving us a standard for who God expects us to be, it's like the bare minimum, okay? I wanna talk just for a second about laws that may or may not be real laws in the state of Maryland. You've all heard like these laws that exist that are on the books that just seem very strange. I wanna give you a, a couple of them. Number one, it's illegal to throw bales of hay from a second story window in Baltimore County or within Baltimore city limits. If you see it happening, run, okay? Why people have bales of hay in Baltimore city limits, I don't know. Things are, they're up to no good. They got hay bales there, just, just be, be careful. It's illegal to take a lion to the movies. In Baltimore, in Anne Arundel, I'm not sure. It, it might be totally legit. Salisbury, maybe, perhaps. Um, it's a park rule violation to sit on a bench with a sleeveless shirt which is unfortunate because when my sleeves are off, you know, you know, <laughs> Kate knows. <laughs> it's a violation of city code, again, we're in Baltimore, to sell chicks or ducklings to a minor within one week of Easter. I don't know if these are real rules or not. I got them from the internet, and as you well know, sometimes the internet leads you down paths that aren't correct, right? It's illegal to curse inside of city limits. I just put that one in there because, yeah, right. You haven't written a ticket for that recently, have you? Evan? No. Okay, so these are laws in Maryland. Maybe, maybe not. Not quite sure. I didn't do a whole lot of fact checking on these, but I thought they would have 
potentially created some atmosphere of jovial relationship between you and I. I don't know if that really worked out, but I attempted that for you. What type of person, according to those laws and other laws that we know, what kind of person would that be that follows those laws? Sketch them to me, if you would. Tell me what they look like. What does a person who does not throw hay bales out of a second story window do? What do we learn about them, about their inner workings? Yep, they're probably not farmers. We don't learn a lot about them. Again, the law is profitable if it's used appropriately. It sets a bare minimum for the things that we should be doing. It sets that standard, but it doesn't tell us who we should strive to be. It just tells us who we should not be. So law teaches what's wrong, but it doesn't necessarily teach what's right. You don't get a good picture of who you should be. So when these guys showed up and they started teaching the law and just said, don't do this, don't do that, there's this, there's that, you can't do this, you can't throw hay bales out a window, you can't wear a sleeveless shirt on a park bench, you can't do all this. They may or may not have followed that, but that wouldn't have inspired them to be the person that Jesus wanted them to be. So Paul couches all this by saying the law is good if it's used appropriately, if it's used for the unrighteous, but for us it's not it's not that thing that should, should make us strive to be who we've been called to be. What's happening in these couple verses, though, I want to call your attention to it. Paul's doing this pretty interesting thing where he's not just looking at the law in general. He's looking specifically at the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment is respect your parents. The sixth commandment is do not murder. The seventh commandment is do not commit adultery. And each of these get a line from Paul in his writings about the appropriateness of the law in the sense of it's for the unrighteous. He talks about the law being for those who kill their fathers or mothers. So it's not just people who are defiant. It's people that have gone beyond that to actually end the life of, of their parents. Um, this teaching is also for murderers. It's also for the sexual sexually immoral or for those practicing homosexuality. And again, Paul is just kind of going one or two steps beyond to say it's, here's this baseline. We have people that are taking it very far. Do not steal. And then we have slave traders being mentioned in the text. Uh, we also have liars and perjurers, which corresponds to the ninth commandment. And then the tenth commandment, which is do not covet. A lot of people think that it's just kind of this catch-all thing where if you're not doing any of the other nine, you're probably at least doing this to some degree. And here Paul says it's for anyone else who is doing things that are contrary to, to his teachings, the teachings of Jesus himself. We also have the first three commandments, which I skipped over, uh, which some people would think fall here with, for the lawless and rebellious, the godless and sinners, the unholy and the profane, would all correspond to our interactions with God. Some people talk about the Ten Commandments in two frames. In the first frame, it's about our relationship to God. In the second frame, it's about our relationship with people. So the first um, four sets our relationship with God, and then the, the other six tell us what we should or should not do to, to the people around us. The fourth one about the Sabbath day is not included in any meaningful way in this passage. There's discussion and debate as to why that is, but I don't have an answer for you. So what Paul's doing is he's taking this idea of the Ten Commandments and he's saying this is great and this works out for the unrighteous, but for us it's not, it's not all that we need. We need much more than that. 
N.T. Wright says, the point of it all seems to be not so much to list various types of bad behavior for their own sake. What we do when we see a set of, of Paul going off where he says this, that, and the other thing, they're all wrong, we usually go through and cherry pick the ones that we deem to be the most important sins or the ones that are most, um, like the worst sins, and we categorize them immediately. A lot of times within, within a church setting, the one that we looked at that probably caught your eye for a second was the bit about homosexuality. Within the church, we have this, this gauge where we hear these buzzwords and we immediately put them up here and we forget the rest of the list. But if you look or even think about that list for two seconds, we're, we're kind of usually included in that. Lying, perjury, covetousness, like anybody who does anything else Yet when we read the text, we see, oh, this is bad, that's what that person does, or that's what these people do, and I'm abstained from all of it, which is a really dangerous place to be. And when Paul has these lists, he's not trying to put them in order of which one's worse than the other. He's usually just trying to say, it's all there, and we participate in it in some way in this passage in particular, what he's trying to say is the law is fine if you want a map of where all the dangers lie. Because again, the law doesn't really tell you where to go, it tells you where to not go. It tells you what to not do. Yet we usually make it, just like the Torah teachers back in the day, we make that be the thing by which we deem all of our sanctification. Do you cuss? Do you look at porn? Do you smoke? Do you do drugs? Do you, like, we just have this list of things that we check off to make sure that we're okay. But we're not really looking at the positive re- requirements of us as, as Christians. Like, are we passionately following Jesus? Are we engaged in conversations with the people around us? Do our neighbors look at us with respect? Are we above reproach? Do we love people with an unconditional and God-honoring love? We usually don't think about that. We're more concerned with the things over here, the things that we're not supposed to be doing. For a lot of us, especially private school kids, let's talk for a second in this little room. Uh, A lot of times the way that we've been trained is don't do this, don't do that, then you'll win a Timothy Award. And I kind of think that that's the wrong way of going about it. We should be doing things. Like Christians are known for the things that they're against, not usually for the things that they're for. They're not usually known for their love and for their charity and for their generosity. We're known as angry people that take whatever gospel we have and hang it over people's heads and say, you're that type of person, therefore you don't belong in this. So um, the law is fine and good if you want a map of where all the dangers lie, but it's not really telling you where to go, it's telling you where to not go. There are indeed dangerous types of behavior out there. There are rules for a reason, and Evan knows this. There's laws that have been put into place because some people will break them and some people will harm one another for their own selfish motivations and gains. We need the law in, in its place to prohibit that from happening. Uh, There's dangerous types of behavior out there and the gospel message of Jesus through which God's glory is truly revealed is just as much opposed to them as the Jewish law is. But don't imagine that by teaching just the Jewish law, you will do more than put up some more signposts warning people about these dangers. It's not up to us just to say, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this other thing. It's up to us to be more positive in how we frame the gospel and what Jesus is calling us to be about instead of living under the rule of legalism. The rule that says, 
these are the things you can't do, and as long as you don't do those, you'll be okay. I hope what you're not hearing is, I'm giving us license to do those things because I'm not. I'm trying to say it's not just about that, it's about something different. And I think this is what Paul's getting at as well when he says the law is good, but only to a point. It's not quite uh, what we need. Within the church, I think that we've missed this teaching because we have become very adept in calling out people for sins and then ranking them accordingly. Oh, you're a really bad sinner. You're an okay sinner. I could sit next to you at a table. I can't sit next to that person at a table. Like we're just very good at kind of listing and ranking and, and we, we miss what's going on uh, in the broader picture, namely uh, what Jesus was all about. I've got two different stories about Jesus that kind of bring this into focus. Uh, the first one is in Matthew 22. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, what happens a lot in Jesus' teachings uh, folks will come up to him to ask him questions. Some people do so because they want to know what's, what's what. Religious leaders do so because they want to trick or trap or make Jesus say things that would be deemed dangerous. Jesus has just had a conversation with the Sadducees where he kind of told them what's up. They asked him a question, they tried to trick him, and he, he answered them so that they said, you have answered very well. Now in the next scene, Pharisees get together and one of them, an expert in the law, tests Jesus by asking him this question. It wasn't just a, I'd really like to know the answer to this question. It's kind of like you're setting someone up for a fall. And the question is this, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? They're trying to get Jesus' opinion on what to do with the 613 commandments in the Old Testament. At the time, there's two schools of thought. One school of thought is you align yourself with the conservative rabbi of the age, which named is Shammai. And what happens in this kind of conservative strain, they would take a law and then they would fence the Torah. So if the law is keep the Sabbath holy, they would make all sorts of rules that go around that law so that they wouldn't break the one law, but they'd have 15 other commandments that go along with it. So in order to not break the Sabbath, you can't walk more than X amount of feet. You can't do X amount of work. You can't start fires. You can't do this. You can't do that. All to keep the one law. So they start adding and fencing the Torah. That's what Shammai does. Very conservative. There's another guy, hip, rebellious, named Hillel. Anytime you meet a guy named Hillel, you know he's going to be a rebel. But he was, a con he was the liberal rabbi that tries to take the law and make, make it less than what it is by, by picking out the important parts of it. Jesus answers the question by saying, here's the greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all the prophets hang on these two commands. Instead of making commandment over commandment over commandment and aligning himself with Shammai, Jesus kind of hangs out with the liberal rabbi of the day and says, it's just these two. All those 613 that are out there, the things that you can't do, it's just two. Love God, love your neighbor. Or as some churches would like to say, love God, love people. That's all it is. So we see this connection that Jesus has with the law. He doesn't want to do away with it, but he wants to tell us what the important parts of the law are, namely, 
love. If you think for a few seconds about how that works out for us, it's usually, it's usually not that. It's usually judgment and identifying sins and placing people in boxes and not letting our relationship be characterized by love. Second story in Matthew 9, it says Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth and again, in context, tax collectors were not good people. They were the people that cheated you. You might have a modern day equivalent of the drug dealers of the times or the pimps of the times. Like they were the people that weren't viewed in society with much respect. But Jesus sees this guy there and says, follow me, and Matthew gets up and follows him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. This is scandalous. Be like Kate and I having prostitutes and drug dealers over for dinner. In our context, that's probably something that's not looked highly upon. Or maybe it is. But here, Jesus is hanging out with these folks that the law has deemed to be not righteous. Continues, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. Again, if you think about that first story, are we characterized by our love for God and our love for people? Then in the second story, are we characterized by the, the shady folks that we have in our in our circles, in our homes, in our relationships, with the conversations that we have, or have we protected ourselves in a holy huddle? Have we deemed who's in and who's out and not let the out people have conversations with us? I'm not arguing that we should put ourselves in situations where we're not safe, but I am arguing that we need to stop categorizing who can accept the gospel and who can't. I live in a... um, townhouse community and every time I ride down that street in my mind I can go from house to house and say who's in and who's out without even having spoken five words to them I don't want to put you in that boat with me but I know that I'm not alone in this boat of judgment and not appropriateness and I think that we need to learn a little bit of something from Jesus here and seeing what the law, how it, can, how it can benefit folks and also how it can be used in some way with the gospel to transform lives. A lot of times we don't allow ourselves even the opportunity to have conversations with people to allow transformation to take place. The way that Paul brings this home uh, is interesting and we see in at least these texts about Jesus, he provides us with a few different examples. He provides us with an example of grace. He provides us with an example of presence where he's around these people. He provides us with an example of charisma. I don't know any other way to say that other than Jesus was perfect, was the son of God, yet all of these people wanted to be where he was. Christians, usually are repellent to those sorts of people because they think that we will just throw judgment upon judgment upon judgment on them. We've kind of missed this idea too where you're able to call a spade a spade as Jesus did, yet people still wanted to talk to him and to be around him and to be with him at the table eating food. 
Ultimately, we see in Jesus an example of love. So just from these first few verses, we can get a lot out of them. Hopefully, we're not the types of people like the teachers of the law that just judge, judge, judge. But we can begin to see who Jesus is and how we can enact that as well. Five more verses. Very little commentary from me. I think that these can speak for themselves. Paul, as I launch into some commentary, Paul frames this discussion further by saying, there's the law that judges people. And I think the implication is, as he tells this little bit of his story, but don't write them off. The people that have killed their fathers and their mothers, don't write them off. The people that are sexual immoral, don't write them off. The people that lie and commit perjury, don't write them off. Why? I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has empowered me, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. It is extremely difficult for us to wrap our minds around this because we see Paul as the author of 60% of the New Testament and not see Paul as the former murderer of Christians. To not see Paul as public enemy number one against the cause of Christ. Yet he says... I thank Jesus that he has empowered me and trusted me, given me this task. He believed in me when nobody else probably did. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Pause right there. The sinners that live on your street, the sinners that you cannot stand, the sinners that are all around you, the sinners that you have written off. Christ came to save them. Paul takes it one step farther and says, and of that lot, I'm the worst of the bunch. There is no hierarchy here where he's trying to flex his muscles and say, I'm the guy, everyone should look at me and listen to me. He's actually saying, I not was the worst, but I am the worst. Each and every day. And I thank Jesus that he saved me. When you have that mindset of, where you've come from and where you're going, it's very difficult to thank anyone other than Jesus, yet we put ourselves in positions where we're, we thank ourselves. Oh, I'm so good. I'm so smart. I did so well today. Read my Bible, prayed for five minutes. It was great. Paul, though, is, is putting it in a different light where he says Jesus is the one who deserves thanks and praise. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, this is Paul saying, he, sh he showed mercy to me when and because I am the worst of the worst so that um, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. And don't you know that we need to see examples of that today where the people that you have written off actually come to faith. We see those crazy stories where Jesus actually changes lives. For a lot of us in the room, like this, this Jesus thing is something that's been with us our whole lives and we've been deprived of seeing those life changes where you come from something totally different. 
Each testimony is important and, and valid, but we need to see and experience that life transformation. And I would also say that we need to experience that life transformation ourselves regardless of where you came from. Whether you were in a gutter smoking crystal meth or whether you went to private school and everything was easy breezy, you need to experience the transformation of Jesus so it doesn't just become the thing, it becomes who you are. Paul then closes with this bit of doxology. He says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. All of this, what we see here is we, in many instances are not so different than the Torah teachers who want to impose law upon law upon folks and call them on it. We also need to see that in that we're missing who Jesus was as being a man of, of love and grace and mercy, able to call people on their stuff, but yet they still wanted to be with him because he actually loved them. We also see in Paul this example of someone who demonstrates God's patience and love and commitment. And it's my prayer that we could also be a people that demonstrate that to some degree towards each other. Seeing how God, where he has taken us from and where we are going so that we can collectively not pat ourselves on the back or pat one another on the back, but look to the immortal, invisible, only God who demonstrated his patience in saving us when we were at our worst or when we were the chief of all sinners or when we were in a completely different place. And once we start to believe that about ourselves and see God as the author and perfecter of our faith, then we can take that to our tables and to our streets and to our neighborhoods and begin to not write people off but wait patiently for Jesus to transform their lives in a powerful display of his grace, his mercy, and his love.